Amen. Let's see. We'll move these over to the side. I feel like there should be some like official protocol about this. All right, so if anybody rushes the flag, Austin, you get the flag. Mike, you get the sword. Defend it at all costs. There we go. Well, good morning. Um, I, as, I was, uh, as I was preparing um, for what I was going to share with you guys uh, this morning, um, a friend of mine, a uh, long memory that had gone past, came back uh, into, into my mind's eye, and, uh, and it was of a friend named Brian. Um, see, Brian... He was a college mate of mine. Uh, he was from California, um, and he was probably the most laid-back, relaxed dude I'd ever met up until that point. He had this, like, self-confidence about himself that was like, I don't care whatever goes on. I'm sure we'll get through it. And one of the most, like, quintessential Mike uh, moments for me, uh, Brian moments, sorry, one of the quintessential Brian moments for me was when um, a group of friends and, and, uh, and myself went up to another friend's house uh, where their parents had a bunch of motorcycles and ATVs, and uh, we were going to trailer them up and go out on some trails and, uh, and go riding for a weekend. Um, well, Brian hears uh, about this and, uh, and comes up and is like, dude, rad, totally, I'd love to shred on some motorcycles. He didn't sound like that, but um, you get the gist. He was, he was all in. He was excited to do it, so we said, come on, uh, the more the merrier. And, uh, and so we all got there, uh, got there that morning, dropped off uh, the trailer with all the bikes. Everybody kind of got on a bike. We started kind of going around uh, the parking lot. And before we know it, we're off and we're going off into the woods. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you the shorter version of it. But essentially, we got to a place uh, that we had stopped and we looked around and uh, we had everybody except one person. Brian wasn't there. Um, and so then we feared, immediately feared the worst, right? We thought, he's come off his bike, he's hurt himself, we need to backtrack and tell, make sure he's okay. Um, so we start going back, and every turn we look, and he's not there, and every turn we look, and he's not there. And we keep going back longer and longer and longer, and we actually get all the way back to the parking lot, where Brian is with his bike about four feet from where he started. As Brian is sitting there trying to uh, uh, disengage the clutch and get it to not stall into first gear, um, we were just kind of baffled. And we're like, Brian, like, hey, buddy, do you know how to ride a motorcycle? And he's like, nah, man, I just, I thought I could figure it out. I knew some of the basics. I just figured I'd be able to do it. And we're like, there's chill, and then there's chill. <laughs> like, his entire, his entire trip was based on him just thinking he'd figure it out and be able to do it. And so uh, the reason I bring this up is because Brian had the will. <laughs> his will was there. He wanted to do this. But without the knowledge he wasn't getting anywhere. He had the will to do it, but without the knowledge, he was, well, getting four feet, and that was about it, right? Um, and, but this morning, the story that we're going to be looking at from Jesus' words is we're going to see the inverse of that. We're going to see how in God's economy, it's different. So even though Brian, who has the will, uh, doesn't have the knowledge and can't accomplish anything, Jesus is going to turn that on its head, and he's going to say, actually, before you can even have the knowledge, you need to have the will, um, and that's going to be the true spiritual truth that we're going to be looking at and developing uh, some points of application from. Uh, to recap a little bit, we're going to be um, back in the book of John in chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can open them up or turn them on, flip over there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, look in the front uh, racks in front of you and hopefully you can grab one of these. Um, we're going to be reading out of the ESV version. But again, chapter 7 uh, revolves all around Jesus, um, particularly Jesus and the Feast of the Booths. 
There's actually three parts. Uh, it's chronologically broken up into three sections across chapter 7. Uh, the first section is the first 10 verses that deals with before the feast. The second se- section uh, deals with during the feast. That's 11 through 36. And then the very end of the chapter deals with the last days of the feast, the aftermath of the feast. Uh, and it's interestingly and probably worth noting that each one of these sequences of chronology can be described by simple words. Uh, the first one before the feast can be described by disbelief. Uh, During the feast can be described by debate. Uh, And after the feast, we're going to see, or the last days of the feast, we're going to see division. Now, last week, Chris uh, launched us off so well into this uh, conversation, uh, covering so much of uh, the disbelief access. There, it was specifically uh, the brothers of Jesus who did not believe in him. I don't know if that's me. Does that mean? The, uh, the, uh, it was specifically in the very beginning what Chris was, was highlighting was um, Jesus' brothers uh, who go up to Jesus and say, um, hey, we know you do great miracles. You should go to this feast in Jerusalem so that all can see the glory, uh, your glory. And really uh, what sounds maybe noble comes all crashing down because they actually don't believe in him. Um, Chris cited a, a commentary, and I agree with Chris and the commentary, that it is probably, probably uh, the brothers who have a self-motivated reason for, going to, for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. You see, they didn't rightly see Jesus for who he was on his own terms. Rather, they wanted to ride the coattails uh, and get some self-glorification by being associated with the one who can do miracles. And that ended up, obviously, um, procuring in their disbelief. Well, here we're going to see another group um, that actually is going to mirror a lot of what we saw last week in the first group. We're going to see a group of Jews in a crowd. Uh, They're also going to come in with disbelief. They're also going to make the mistake of making it about their self-glorification. And they also, unfortunately, are going to miss Jesus uh, and fall into disbelief. Now, why, why I think, just as a small comment, why I think that is the brother's uh, motivation that was self-serving um, is actually uh, all hinged on verse 24. Verse 24 is going to be a key verse for the entire chapter of chapter 7. Everything last week, everything today is going to be really pointing and, and drawing from uh, verse 24. Everything actually in the next weeks to come is going to be drawing back from 24, which simply says this, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You see, this was the problem of the brothers. The brothers judged Jesus by his appearance, by what was known to man. They saw him as a miracle worker. And instead, they applied that appearance to their own self-glorification. How can I benefit from Jesus' miracle working? And they missed it. Today, we're going to hit another group, the Jews. They're also going to observe Jesus on the surface. They will also be struck by their self-glorification. And they also, unfortunately, won't believe Let's get into the text, and let's read it as an entirety before we break it down into smaller bits. Um, Out of reverency of God's word, I'm going to ask you to stand uh, just so we can physically align our bodies with hopefully what um, we can align our hearts to. Starting in verse uh, 14, it says this, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine. But his who sent me, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? 
The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? And Jesus answers them, I did one work and you marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let's pray. Jesus, we read your words so that we may truly know you. Is our prayer that this knowledge does not simply reside in our heads. Rather, through the power of your spirit, may it affect our hearts. And with that effect, may we be able to say, not my will, but your will, O Father. Amen. Y'all go ahead and have a seat. The entire section that we just read um, is, is all to do with Jesus' authority. That's what John is highlighting for us here. Um, when clearly there's some disbelief of the knowledge of Jesus, John's first response is to point to how uh, you should have knowledge because Jesus is of the ultimate authority. So take the knowledge from him. There's actually some fascinating and deep truths that are revealed here, some mind-blowing stuff that comes out of this. Um, so let's hopefully, uh, let's hopefully go back through and take a couple verses or a verse at a time uh, and draw out some of these truths so that we can get to a point of application. Read back with me on verse 14, starting in the beginning. About the middle of the feast, uh, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. If you remember back to when Chris and John sh uh, shared the stage and we had that uh, cool graphic that kind of did that virtual experience walking through the temple and you saw the outer colonnades with the covered awnings, this is likely where Jesus is going and he is teaching. Verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now, some of your Bibles may have a note here um, that it's, uh, that it's uh, more literally translated as, how does this man know his letters? Or maybe some other, some other translations say, how does this man know writings? How does he know how to write? Um, these probably are literally what's going on, but I, I do agree with the ESV in this uh, translation, capturing the thought of what is coming here, because it's not that they're marveling at the fact that Jesus knew his ABCs. Um, it isn't that he, they're marveling that he could read or write. Most Jew adults at the time most men who are adults and Jews would have known how to read and write. So they're not marveling at that. Rather, what they're marveling at is they're mar marveling at his ability uh, to discern religious truth, his ability to understand religious matters. And moreover, it's not even that that impresses him, but more specifically, uh, they are so amazed that he can attain that level of truth with no formal education. This is a similar amazement that we'll actually see of, uh, described of the disciples in Acts 4.13 when Peter and John uh, are taken in and seen clearly by the crowds. Well, how is it that they know this? They are uneducated men. And the conclusion there is actually, well, they must have been with Jesus. So this is a, a key aspect of Jesus' character that we're getting here um, is that he's astonishing the crowd because, yes, he knows the truth, but he's not going about presenting the truth from the typical standard that the Jews would be familiar with. You see, to a Jew, there's really only one school of learning, and that's theology. What do you know about God? And really, there's only one road to gaining theology, and that was the school of the rabbis, rabbinical thought. But Jesus doesn't fit that pattern. He doesn't come out of the school of the rabbis then with this revealed thought. Um, and this is what amazes them. You know, the brothers last week were amazed at the prowess for Jesus' miracles. And this week we're seeing the crowd amazed at his prowess for learning. Again, these surface level things that are observed. 
And Jesus responds to the Jews the same way he did to the brothers. He deflects them to God. Look down, verse 16. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Jesus is doing two things in this answer that I think are of note. One, he's, uh, he's responding to the crowd. But two, he's also modeling something before them that we uh, can rightly respond to as well. See, again, the typical response of a rabbi at this moment when his authority might have been questioned or when he was questioned to validate himself, uh, what he would do is he would actually cite other rabbis. That would have been normal. You would have had a rabbi say, I tell you this great truth because you know this rabbi told you this truth. And so I tell you now this truth because this other rabbi told you this truth. And they found their authority by citing each other. What Jesus is clearly doing here is he's saying, I'm not here to continue this rabbinic tradition. But he's also not claiming that this teaching is solely his own. This is why I think there's a right response or right motivation that's being modeled by Jesus here. He's saying, I don't say this for my own glory, but for the glory of the Father. You see, I'm not seeking human praise, but I do seek the Father's glory. This will become the baseline of understanding that we need to have to understand the next two verses. Again, Jesus makes it clear, my teaching is not my own, but God who sent me. Now, our natural response, maybe the crowd's natural response, would be to ask the question, well, how can we know that? How can we know that, Jesus? If you're saying this is true, how can we know it is true? Well, John records it in such a way that Jesus doesn't allow the crowd to ask it. He just answers it. And so he answers that in the next verse, verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Wow, this is such a profound verse. I'm going to read it again. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. You see, this is an interesting thing that as Jesus is citing his father as the source um, for his knowledge, he's doing a couple things. Um, and one of the things that uh, I think he is doing is he's doing something I don't naturally expect here. Because naturally how I would expect this conversation to go is that if Jesus has presented this truth, let's say he's given this knowledge, and the people don't understand this knowledge, well, what's the natural intellectual conversation from here? Well, you take that knowledge and you break it down into other bits of knowledge, smaller, simpler forms, and you communicate that so that you can point to the right knowledge. This is what I admired so much about my wife when she taught first grade is because she could take the simplest of truths and break them down even further so that kids could learn and understand in first grade. Me, on the other hand, I'm like, one plus one is two. That's about all I got. Good luck with college. <laughs> I couldn't do that, but she did that so well. But Jesus here isn't doing that. He's not saying, here's this knowledge you don't have, so let me break it down so you can get it with other knowledge. Instead, he's turning it exactly upside down, and he's saying, you know what? How you understand this, con this complex knowledge is not with more knowledge, but with your heart, with your will. Essentially, to restate it this way, Jesus is teaching that the key factor here was moral, not intellectual. The obstruction here was not head knowledge. It was heart knowledge. I would say it like this in the conclusion that I want to, uh, about this verse, I would say that we can, the spiritual truth we can glean is right willing is the basis for right knowing. Right willing is the basis for right knowing. I want to pause here and I want to jump into our first application. 
um, from this understanding of right willing as the basis for right knowing, the first application I want to leave with you guys is uh, that your will is a witness. Your will is a witness. Again, John's whole purpose of writing that he explains in uh, chapter 20 that we talked about and boiled down to three simple words is that his whole purpose of the book is three words, Jesus, belief, life, that you may know Jesus, have the knowledge of Jesus, and that would lead uh, for you to, to uh, display a faith and thus receive a life. That's the whole point of what it is, one, two, three, knowledge in Jesus leading to belief in him and the reception of life. Not one, two, three, apparently in Jesus' words, and what John's doing is saying, it's not actually one, two, three, that was one B, two, and three, because there's actually a one A. Before even the knowledge of Christ can be received, you must have a will that aligns with it. And so why do I bring this up as a point? Because if we want others to know the knowledge of who Jesus is, yes, we must share that knowledge. At the same time, we know that understanding must start with the right will. So in the same way we share that knowledge, we should also be displaying and sharing our will in alignment, not with ourselves but with God's. We should display a right will, knowing that our will is a witness. I think this is ever more true in the current times that we are seeing right now, right? Because this is the result of a postmodern American society where personal truth doesn't have to be answered or have subjection to outside truth. That my personal claims, don't, my knowledge that I hold with inside of me uh, has no bearing on the knowledge that is outside of me. I don't, I don't have to put it in response to that. I can hold it as my own. This is one of the things that I thought was sad as we watched over our political landscape over this past season um, with, this, with this hearing and this nomination. Um, and I'm not gonna get into all the politics of it or the right and wrong or, or how things were handled or mishandled, but one of the things I will say was at least on baseline a shame is you watched two people who were clearly hurt by this process and had to go through this process were very clearly from the onset it was apparent that it wasn't going to change anybody's vote. They had to go through this whole process only to end up with the votes placing largely the exact same as it was even three months ago in the announcement. Again, there was a predisposition of this is the knowledge and I assert it and I don't have to listen to anything else. And that was a sad state that we had to watch. We can't just say, oh, well, that's a sad thing of our political lives, um, but it's also true of our personal lives, right? Think about the conversations at the workplace. Or when in doubt, just open up Facebook, right? Go find a post of a friend who says some definitive answer on an opinion that he has about something that's going on. And so naturally what happens after that? Somebody rebuttals and says, well, I actually think this and points to some other logical reason or truth. And so then, of course, we all know as Facebook participants, what's the third thing that we see? Well, we see the original writer going back and saying, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so glad you pointed that out. Thank you. I recant what I said earlier. And now here's my corrected view. Says Facebook, never, <laughs> Right? This is why we see these arguments just being futile because nobody's engaging with it actually to receive the knowledge. They think their knowledge is unattainable or unaccessible by the influence of any other outside knowledge. This is the fate of the postmodern world. So why do I say that is important? It's because we know that the culture around us who we are trying to affect with the knowledge of Christ is not going to easily be receptive of hearing that knowledge from us, then maybe we need to go down to a simpler form first. Maybe before we express that knowledge, we need to make sure that our will is on full display. 
I would say it like this. If they're not going to respond to our rational knowledge of Jesus, maybe first they must see our irrational devotion to the will of the Father. Of course, I'm using irrational from the term of the world's perspective. That maybe that's what's going to be captivating them and being able to give us our first step into presenting the knowledge of Jesus. Because before you get knowledge of Jesus, you must have the will of the Father. From the, uh, uh, there was a sub-point application um, that I kind of wanted to make knowing the demographic of our church and having a lot of, like myself, young families and raising them. Um, because yes, it's true that your will is a witness. Uh, in the same way, it's important for us to remember that your will is a witness while raising little ones. Or for the sake of alliteration, your will is a witness while raising little ones. <laughs> that was free. If all we do when we're parenting our kids is simply tell them about Jesus, then if all we do is we present the knowledgeable facts about who Jesus is, yet in our lives we do nothing to display the effect of God's will in our lives, then no wonder they're not going to either come to faith or why they're going to walk away the moment they get out of our houses. Even worse, it might be that if you're counting on somebody else to tell that knowledge and you're not even displaying that will, then the boat is even further ashore. So what we must do, I think, as parents is remember that not only should we be passing down the knowledge, not only should we be talking to our kids about what is true about Christ, we should be displaying in front of them a will that is in alignment of it. As an example, I have um, actually my mom who's in town because Jill was out of town, so she watched the kids while I had some church work to do this weekend, and, uh, uh, and I, I can clearly remember being raised, um, kind of told, and, and being presented with the knowledgeable fact that as a Christian, I should give generously of the things that are given to me. I should share with others what I've been entrusted to have. And that was something that I could say, yes, my parents wanted me to know that truth well. The knowledge was clearly presented to me. I'll tell you, that truth took on a whole nother form of embedding into my heart when I watched my sister, who was two years older than me, um, graduate high school, go off to college, there was an empty room, and my parents invited a girl from a struggling family over to live with them. Even more, when I graduated two years later and went off to college, what do you think they did to my room? They gave it away to another girl. At the moment that my parents could have said, I'm free, and we're empty nesters, we're finally done with this parenting thing, what did they do? We'll start all over. You know, I knew the truth that I should be generous with the things that I've been trusted with from their teaching. But when I saw their will, it rung true in an ever more real way. And so in the same for our kids, may we be displaying not just the truth of knowledge, but also our will that is in line with it. Now, if we just stopped right there in the text and left with this, uh, this, this paradigm that Jesus has turned upside down of us needing to have will of the Father before knowledge, then we could all sit around like good beatniks and hit some drums on some green grasses and talk about the million ways to discover the will of God. Uh, But luckily, Jesus doesn't leave us alone in verse 17, and he gives us verse 18. And verse 18 is a paramount understanding of what this will of God that he is talking about. So look down at the text, verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. No falsehood. The Greek word here is adikia, which actually means unrighteousness, more literally translated. What it is saying here is he's saying he is, Jesus is true, and unrighteousness is not in him. A double negative. He is true, and he is righteous. That is what it is saying here, that he is true, and he is righteous. But what is this mark of truth? 
How do we know that this is true? Well, Jesus says, because one who is exalting God, that's where truth is. One who's exalting himself, that's not where truth is. In essence, if I was to put 17 and 18 back to back with their conclusions, I would say this about 17. Willing God's will enables us to know Jesus. And then verse 18 makes clear the mark of truth is God exaltation, not self-exaltation. Verse 18 describes the deepest change that needs to happen in my life to know uh, the knowledge of what Christ is giving me, and that is that I need to stop looking at my own self-exaltation, and I need to depend on God uh, for his own ability to draw glory to himself. When I wrote it, I wrote it like this, the will of God for his son and for us is to make much of God. We, by our sin nature, are like the brothers, we're like the Jews, But within us is this divine image bearing where we have these echoes of truth, uh, knowing that there is not truth found in my self-glorification, but I was created for something greater, and that was the glorification of God. I need love for the glory of God more than I need love for myself. I need to will God's exaltation more than self-exaltation. And I think this is the essence of the will as our witness what, are we, what is our will demonstrating as our witness? It is demonstrating to make much of God's glory and little of ourselves. Now, unfortunately, for the sake of time constraints, we're gonna, we're gonna fast forward and skim very quickly um, over the next five verses, 19 through 24, um, to kind of give you a little bit of kind of an overcap, a summary about what, what's about to go on. Um, Leon Morris, a, a theologian who passed away uh, about 10 years ago, um, wrote this quote, and I liked it so much I put it on the screens. It says, his hearers had raised the question of his competence as a teacher. Jesus, he raises the question of their competence as hearers. This is the debate section that's going on. It's not in a typical debate of the Jewish rabbis where it's knowledge and intellect battled back and forth, but Jesus has cut to the heart. He has said that this is a heart problem, a heart obstruction, and here's how I can show it to you. Jesus is confirming that the crowds do not have the will of the Father. Because how did God give his will to the people of Israel? Through the law. How did God demonstrate to them what his will as the sovereign God was? Well, he gave them the law. This is why Jesus says, look down in 19, has not Moses given you the law? Has not God given you his will through Moses? Yet, none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus is simply saying here is God has demonstrated himself, his will has been given through his law and you guys aren't even keeping that. Why are you seeking to kill me? And we get the crowd's answer here and it seems out of place and apparently the crowd doesn't know, they haven't read the book of John as we've read the book of John up until now, which makes sense, uh, but they're not aware of all the higher Jewish rulers who are seeking the death of Jesus as we've already come across. And so the crowd answers, uh, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. This is a normative response probably of the time uh, because again, in back in a culture where they don't understand psychological health or mental health issues, oftentimes if somebody was exhibiting some mental illness or having some absurd paranoid, they just cast it off as, um, well, he must be possessed by a demon. And so that's clearly what this is. Jesus is saying is you are trying to kill me uh, and he, they're saying, well, we're not trying to kill you. You must be paranoid. You must have a demon. In 21, Jesus answers them, I did one work. This is probably a reference to the healing of the 
Pool of Bethesda by the language because it says, and you marveled at it. I did one work and you marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Essentially, again, the argument boils down to this, is God has revealed his will through his law. And what Jesus is saying is if you sought that law correctly, you would see my heart, my will behind giving it to you. But that isn't what the Jews were doing. Instead, what they were doing is they were responding with a legalistic approach to the law. What they were doing is they took the law and they made it all about how they could justify themselves. If I do all these things and I don't do these things, then I can stand before Almighty God and say, I am justified. This is the danger of legalism. This same danger of legalism is true for us in our Christian faith today. If we think that this Christian faith is simply about doing the right thing so that we can present ourselves to the holy God, unfortunately, I face we will meet a holy God who is nothing like that. Because he is a holy God who says, no, 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 it is not what you can do, but it is everything about what I can do for you, thus sending of the Son. It's the danger of the legalistic Jewish mindset here is that they were making this about their own self-glorification. They were using the laws to glorify themselves. And Jesus says, by doing that, you're focusing on the law and missing the heart of the lawmaker. By focusing on the rules and the behaviors, you are missing the point when you're trying to justify yourself. Rather, the correct will would be to glorify the Father. And this is essentially the illustration that he gives down for him is because apparently here he's giving him an example of how to follow the law in such a way that actually lines up with the heart of the lawmaker. He is telling him that there's laws about circumcision that have to be followed. There's also laws about Sabbath and not doing any work. And in trying to actually hold to the right way of giving the law, the way God says, uh, they go ahead and do the work of circumcision, even though it's on the Sabbath, because they're uh, identifying that God's heart is bigger than just following these rules, but doing something better about concentrating his people is more important. And, and what Jesus is saying is, you're doing that, but yet you've turned it into a system about yourself and you forgot the heart of God. Because if you saw the heart of God and remembered that, there would be no way you would come and criticize me for healing a man on the Sabbath. I mean, how bad would it be if I said, you know what, it's the Sabbath, I'm not even going to do it. And for the rest of the life, this man is an invalid. Does that follow the heart of the lawmaker? No. And this is Jesus' critique. And he says again in this hinge verse about why all of this has gone wrong, how all of this is messed up from his brothers to this crowd by saying in verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You see, when we, when we judge by human standards, the appearances of what we can do, and we make it about our own self-glorification, then we are going to miss the truth of Jesus' authority. So final application. So where do we go from here with all that we have observed? If we've said that willing God's will is necessary for knowing Jesus, if we have said God's will is his own glorification, I'll close by saying this encouragement, then pursue what increases his will and decreases your will. 
Another pastor more poetically put it this way, and I'll share that with you. He said, strive to increase your taste for the glory of God as your favorite flavor. I liked that. I get that. I know a lot about my favorite flavors. And if you're thinking, well, how do I actually go about that? I think the illustration actually plays out well enough that I even know from another kind of thought experience that I did in college, this time with a guy named Fred, um, where we were curious about how we have flavors that we like and dislike and how much of that is natural or how much of that is trained. Um, and so we took two objects that we both, that the other one of us both hated. Um, he loved green olives. Uh, I despised green olives. Don't judge me. I love black licorice. I know, I know. He, rightly like all of y'all, despised black licorice. So what did we do? We, we actually uh, set a commitment to each other um, that for three meals a day for an entire month, we were going to make sure that we included a portion of what we hated. So every day for three meals, when I went to the cafeteria, no matter what I got, I also got a little bowl of green olives and I choked them down. And for 30 days, I was miserable. And you know what? The day, I remember distinctly, the day after the challenge was over, and I got to go into the cafeteria and make a bowl of cereal and not have to chase it down with green olives, that was a good morning. <laughs> but oddly, what happened to me is about, about a week, it was about a week later, I was having lunch and I was having a ham sandwich. And you know what happened? I was like, you know, I could go for some green olives right now. <laughs> Now, this illustration breaks down if I told you the whole truth. To this day, Fred hates black licorice. I feel so bad for him. It didn't work uh, for him, but it did work for me. What I did is I knew I wanted some other reality. I wanted to hold to a knowledge that I did not feel in my heart. I, my, my will did not say eat green olives, but I disciplined myself to do that. And what, lo and behold, what I found is I found my flavor, my taste changing and being more inclined with that. This Physical application has a spiritual application. So if you want to do God's will, what do you do? Well, just looking at the activities of the church, one of the things you do is you read his word. Hopefully not just in here when we study it together, hopefully in your house and in your home. What do you do if you want God's will? Well, you spend time with those who love him more than they love themselves. This is the right reason why we encourage life groups, small group friendships, meeting outside, is because hopefully you'll get engaged with those and you'll see that person loves Jesus better in this way than I love Jesus. I need to rub shoulders with them. I need to be inspired by them. Or maybe you need to simply, if you want to know God's will, you need to participate in the things he is doing. That's why we have so many aims of our church to go on missions and get our members on missions. Of course, whether that's across oceans or whether that's here in our backyard or across Texas, um, but also even here on our own property um, or right down the street as we, we look at track or Royal Family Kids Camp um, or here at the Scottish Games that is coming on. Yes, let's have a bunch of burly men and killed swinging heavy objects, but let's do so so we can tell other people about Jesus. If you want to know about God's will, come participate in his work on mission that he is doing. So I'd say it like this as a final reminder. Our will is a witness. The will of God is not self-glorification, but his glory. And if you want to participate in God's will, start participating in all the things that he has given you. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, give us the strength to follow your command. 
as James has said, not just to be hearers of your word, but doers. Father, give us uh, your will so that we may know your son. Allow us to live out that will, not glorifying ourselves, but giving glory to you. Father, bless us with the participation in your work as your will in our lives will serve as a witness for others to come to know you. It is in these things that we pray. Amen.